welcome to the London Property Podcast, the home of Superprime. Today, we're in conversation with Joanna Molinius, who has an architectural firm in London. So I um, moved to London in, in 2000 and um, uh, within two years have set up a company because one of the one of the things in my office is we cover about eight languages and um, we've noticed that there's so many foreigners in London who, who have the funds to buy in London, be it first homes or second homes, and who very much like to work with somebody who understands them, understands their culture, understands what at what at the end of the day their brief is and what they're striving for and i think that that being able to cover those languages and understanding the construction the difference in 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 construction within an urban environment like london versus often where they're from um understanding that difference and and being able to hold their hands through that process i think really helped us to develop a a, a very big networking base and clientele in in London and and in, in, in the prime central London, because most clients that we do have are most foreigners that do come to London or live in London by in 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 uh, uh, in prime London. So, what would you say is your kind of unique way um, of taking on a project? So, if your ideal client who behaves in the way that you <laughs> yeah. want them to behave, what would be that? ideal scenario the brief from brief finding it, to the end so I, I question is actually very poignant it's it's not about how the client behaves it's the relationship between a team and and the relationship starts with the client the architect and the contractor and then you have a whole bunch of sub consultants um which which tend to work under or with the architect but the architect will be the lead consultant and i think if that if that triangle works so if 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 the client, the architect, and, and ultimately the contractor who's building the property. If the three of them work well together, you'll get the ultimate project. You will get the best project. You will get the best design from the architect. You will get great communication. You will get um, uh, contractors if you pay them on time. Ironically, most of them tend to stay in budget. It's it's often the client's extras and then that tip the budget. But if, if, if you have... So when you ask about clients behaving... It's more about understanding and trusting your architect and trusting your team, your professional team, and taking that advice on board and then um, acting accordingly. And every single client that we've had who've taken that advice on board, we've had incredibly successful projects um, uh, that finished on time, that were within budget, that were within because we had a very good working relationship. And would you say that the majority of the people who come to you are coming through uh, uh, word of mouth and recommendations rather than you actually um, trying to publicly advertise for people? So we've um, had most of our, for the, for, for the last 20 years, it's all been um, word of mouth. Everything's been word of mouth. And we fly a little bit under the radar, which is something that I also want to have. We have our offices, uh, we're 12, 12 architects. And I'd like to keep it that size um, so we can dedicate and give our clients um, that that hand-holding process, which which we value so much in any of the projects and which also our clients value very much. So it is everything is, is word of mouth. Um, and we're also thankfully now at a stage where and it's almost like an interview process for on both sides. So the architect um, gets interviewed by the client. So when when we get recommended to work for somebody, the, the client will We'll sit down with us and, and we'll, we'll discuss the brief. And, and it's almost like a interview process, whether or not they like us. It's incredibly important that, and my advice to any client would be to speak 
with not as many architects as possible because it just gets a bit confusing, but to, to definitely have at least three architects that they speak with because it's a very important relationship that you're going to have with the architect. It Most projects tend to be, um, if they're sizable projects, at least one year, if not more. It's a not a very straightforward process with the councils. Most prime central London properties are either listed or are within a conservation area. So the the um, there'll be quite a few trials and tribulations with the council and getting the permissions. And you need to have that trust in your architect because it it it's all about programming. It's about making sure that they not only have your back, but that they will have, that they will work on behalf of the project. And sometimes you'll get bad news from the architect, but you need to know that the architect will, that, that it's the trust, but that the architect is doing the best for the project and making sure that they manage the client's expectations. And I think often if that, if that's not in sync, that's where things can go wrong. So um, just coming back to your question, um, it's very important that the clients speak to various of architects just to make sure that they hire a firm of architects where they know that or feel that they can trust because it is going to be a fairly long process and a fairly long relationship. Yeah, so you have to have the, the, yeah. the ingredients right so that the relationship Correct. doesn't break down. Correct. And uh, do you tend to do more owner-occupier things? Or let me ask you another question. So when you're doing something for owner occupations versus investment, yeah. what's the kind of different uh, attitude you take towards it or different different way of looking at the project? Well, so we have, and, and um, we, we do a little bit of everything and, and, and also answering your first question about whether or not they're, they're mainly private clients and, and how we get the clients if we're recommended or not. So, so in answer of all of these questions, it's, we have, I would say half of our clients are private clients. So it's, they're end users. Um, which is word of mouth. The We have another half. We work for a lot of estates. We work for the Bedford Estates, Grosvenor Estates. Um, we've done some work for the Howard de Walden Estates. And it's it's almost like a, um, a development for them, which they will then let out. So it's quite similar to having in, in investments. We have done for some of our clients, private clients who've done similar to this Muse House, which we're going to be talking about in a minute, where they will buy this for their children Um or they will rent it out for a while and it's just an investment. Uh, the approaches will be vastly different. So if it's an end occupier, it tends to be a lot more hands-on and it tends to be a lot more design focused. It tends to be a lot more, we'll, we'll take a lot more care in choosing the materials and, and making sure that the client understands the product that they're actually going to get at the end and is managing their expectations. When we have an investment property, it's easier for us because it's there's less attachment to the building. And we, we, we're always very careful. We don't follow trends at all. Um, we're quite a unique, small practice. We don't go crazy either. It's, it's all about elegance and, and mindfulness. And it, it's, we work with real materials. So, um, it's something that's lasting and that will will really be there with you for a very long period of time and um which is incredibly important for us um and it's ironically we've had very good feedback from from investors and from people renting those properties so going for the classical style so it doesn't date correct when we get an initial phone call or an initial um, um, email 
asking, uh, be it investment or be it an end user, about a, a potential property, um, I will ask some questions ahead of time if it's the first time they're building or not, if how much experience they have. Obviously, I'll ask how they got our, our, our number. Um, and um, and what we'll do is before we meet, but I try and arrange an initial meeting quite quickly just to get this interview process going and seeing whether or not we want to work with the client as much as the client wants to work with us. But we will always do very quick research on the council, the website, on on any properties and any developments that have happened on the street. So for this one, for instance, on Cranley Mews, we very briefly, and it doesn't take more than a half an hour, hour maximum, I'll have somebody in the office do a very quick search on RBKC's website. In this case, we're in the Thurlow Conservation Area. And I've just had a quick look in terms of any developments that have happened over the last five to 10 years. And interestingly, um, number 26, which is a bit further down, has, has developed a basement. So that will add uh, value and square footage to the house, obviously. Absolutely. And when, when you've, so, so um, if you then, on the same subject, talk about the features that you would restore. Yeah. So that when we're looking outside, 26 is all the way at the other end on the right hand side. So you can you can mm-hmm. do that. And then talking about the different features that you see as you walk down the muse and how you would reinstate and use the best of what you've seen in the muse, like you said, to take the paint off and make it exposed yeah. brick, the balconies and so on. So when, when a lot of people with muses have, have, have been redeveloped and, and developed and developed, what we're not allowed to forget, we're now behind Roland Gardens. And Roland Gardens, they used to be single houses. It was very, very wealthy. And Muse houses were the stables to the back of these buildings. And Muse houses are not necessarily very well built. They have very, very little, if any, foundations at all. Um, so they, a feature like this fireplace that we see in the background is, is that's man-made. So that was built at a later stage when this was, when this was redeveloped. You would never have had that. Um, these were simple stables. And one of the things that I would definitely, and I'm just looking behind me now, you've got this almost sort of bay window here. I would try and take this back down again and, and have it, have a wood paneling and, and you can modernize it. You can have a really slick muse house where you have, where used to be the garage doors or stable doors, and they would actually have stable doors here as well. So if we walk down the, the muse house and we can pinpoint some of them, it wouldn't, they wouldn't have had they wouldn't have had been painted and you would have had stable doors on either side, but also on the top, um, you would have the hay and you have a lot of, you can see it here where you have balconies, you'd have the double doors. Um, you, you'd have something come out where they would lift and, and take up the hay. It, it, it's, it was a functional stable. And nowadays these have become really prime, incredibly expensive properties that a lot of people and especially a lot of investors go for. So you have the students that live in there or young couples that live in there it is it's a a living in a smaller space but in in quite nice areas so if the it's not typical to only chelsea or south kensington or knightsbridge but where you have a lot of wealthy large-scale houses so if you look at the booth poverty map where you find the larger houses you will always find the muses behind them and when you were walking down the muse, what are some of the features that you noticed that you'd like to try and reinstate uh, should you be redeveloping this muse? So with this muse, I would definitely redevelop um, 
the, the backdrop here so that the bay, I would take this further down. I would put stable doors back in, same as next door where the kitchen is. I would definitely put the door back on the first floor. I would create a balcony. Um, we'll see on one of the balconies, there's a quite, quite sweet. They've put two little chairs and a table there. Um, I would potentially even try and seek permission to pull the balcony a bit further down. Um, I would reinstate the double windows, sash windows to the top. Um, when I say reinstate, they wouldn't have been there originally. They would have been openings, but they would not have been sash windows. But I would, or potentially one sash window, but there's a lot of precedence of two windows up there. That's something that I would do because a muse house, one of the typical features, it's two stories. So it's, you've got ground and first floor and um, you they wouldn't have been built higher. So often in muses, you don't get very much light. So you've got the larger buildings on either side of the muses, which were the, the dominant and the the, the the properties themselves. And then you'd have the muses where the stables were behind them. And the muses are often, this muse is quite wide, but you'll often find that the muses are a little bit thin, not quite as wide and, and you, they don't get a lot of light. So I would try and get and maximize the light wherever possible. A lot of these properties here have very large skylights. That's something I would definitely go for. Um, in terms of planning, that wouldn't be an issue because it's not visible from the street. I would, again, do the balcony, the door, and then I would reinstate the, the, the second window. There's two small windows, which we'll see in a little bit, that I would just enlarge. Um, I would actually consider building a basement, even though you can't put a put a bedroom in the basement because we wouldn't have natural ventilation it is it does give you a lot of space and with very clever lighting um you can really make something great with it and i think it's well worth it so now everybody keeps talking about how basements are not allowed so how does that well no each council within london has different policies or they have this the, the basic policies yes basements are allowed it, it's become a lot more difficult to build them and it's very expensive to get the permission so we need to have the, the hurdle of getting the planning permission is just a lot greater we need to provide a lot more reports we need to have soil assessments we need to have basement impact assessments we need to have construction traffic management plans we need to have suds calculations suds calculations just drainage water drainage um and and all of these reports can cost an enormous amount of money which you then submit to the council to seek permission now the policy of this specific council royal borough of, uh, of kensington chelsea is very specific on their policy that you are allowed to build a basement it's just it'll take you time and it'll be very expensive to actually get the reports and the permissions in place but you can build a basement and should for any reason a planning permission get denied you can appeal that and it will be successful there are too many examples um, of basements there's one example here of a basement but of muses around here that have basements now the policy um, was in 2014 had changed and shifted from double basements to single basements um, and the policy again has now been formalized so we have to follow a lot stricter guidelines, but you are allowed to build a basement. Now you just need to be careful. If it's a listed building, you won't be able to build, or it's very, on a very, very rare occasion, will they allow you to build under a listed building? I think I only know of one or two examples. Um, if at all, you're allowed to build in, in gardens, 50% of the garden, you're allowed to build um, a basement in. In this Muse house, in this case, there is no garden and the property line would end where the house line ends. So the basement would have to be directly below the footprint 
of the Muse House. Okay. Um, so people say that basements are really expensive to build. So let's say on a cost per square footage, are we looking at what, £750 pounds a square foot? I think oh, it's a good question. It really depends. So we have an example now in, in the Muse where both neighbours had built basements. So our client no longer needs to underpin either side of the party walls, but they would have to give the half of the cost of that underpin to the neighbors, but you've already saved a substantial amount of money. So each, 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 each one is different. I would um, definitely say at least 500. This is the shell only. This is not a fit out for the shell only. You're looking at 500 to 600 per square foot. And then for the fit out, it really depends on the client. Uh, some clients spend, I've spent 800 pounds per square foot and I've spent 200 per square foot. It really depends ultimately what the client's brief is and what they're looking for and how much they want to spend on materials. If it's a straightforward basic investment and you're looking to put maybe a gym in there or you're looking to put a media room in there, that's one thing. But if it's if if you have a garden and you can create light wells and bedrooms and whatnot, it, it, that then becomes a completely different kettle of fish. Right. So let's say the worst case scenario costs you £750 a square foot. You are going to add, no matter how you look at it, you, double that. Yeah. But this is where you come in. Um, yeah. So things like what, what the rental will, what the rental value would be once they have done the work or what the sale price would be once they've done the work. That is something as an architect, we don't actually get involved in anymore. And, and I don't know the market well enough to, to be able to give any clients any guidance on that. But yeah. someone, an expert like you, would be able to do that. Yeah. So basically, you, you spend 750 you're going to get 1500 back. That's the point. What type of projects do you do? So um, in terms of, of typology of projects that we do, um, we specialize in both very high-end residential, but also we do a lot, quite a bit of commercial work and we do a lot of estate works. Um, uh, for instance, Bedford Estates and Grosvenor Estates, just just to name a few. And we do a lot of work in the arts. So we've we've done quite a few galleries. Um, we're currently working on a on a on a museum in Kensington, um, uh, which is focused on design. So we we sort of dabble in a little bit of everything. And 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 the great thing about working in in the art world is bringing that in into the high end residential. So so we really have a portfolio. A quite diverse portfolio and we've recently finished in in central soho which is very exciting we've recently finished an eight-story new built on, on merit street which is the oldest street in in soho nice thank you for listening to joanna molinius in conversation with the london property podcast the home of super prime please get in touch with us info at londonproperty.co.uk if you have any questions